this morning we're going to be in John chapter 1. I'm going to jump around a couple places. So if you have your Bible and want to follow along, we're going to be John 1. I'm going to start in 35 and go a little bit towards the end. Then we're going to jump over to chapter 14 and do chapter 14 and 15. Uh, if you're newer around here, every August I like to come back and talk a little bit about our vision and how it connects with us in very specific ways. Uh, I think I understand. Like It's very easy to forget where we're supposed to be going. Uh, back A few months back, we were out in Orlando, Florida, and I was doing a wedding out there. And we decided to get away for a day, go to Universal Studios together as a church or as a family, not a church family. I'm so used to saying that. And uh, uh, but we went out to Universal Studios. Absolutely incredible time. The um, cat was meeting us a, a little bit after, so Caleb and I got there early, and we were some of the first people to park. And we were so excited to be at the park. We jumped out, we started running in, and we forgot to take a picture of where we parked. And, and so like, we go out there, Cat meets us in, and we kind of go do our thing. We had an awesome day. We're exhausted, tired, the whole thing at the end of the day. We come back, and the parking lot is absolutely massive, and I completely forgot where we were supposed to park. It took us about 30 minutes. I'm wandering around uh, to be able to go find the, the car. The family was really thrilled with me about that. Um, but I think we understand, like, sometimes it's really easy to forget where you're supposed to be going. And so we come back and we talk a lot about our vision and put that in front of us and keep it in front of us all the time. If you've been around for a little while, you've heard us talk about it. We say we want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family here at DBC. We talk about family quite a bit. We absolutely are family. Those who are in Jesus Christ are called sons and daughters of the King. Uh, We've been given the right to be called children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're absolutely a family, and so we don't run from that. But we are intentional to say we want to be more like Medea's family than we are the Fockers on Meet the Parents or something like that. you got the circle of trust. It's impossible to get inside the circle of trust. That's Meet the Parents versus Medea's family who has a barbecue and literally the entire neighborhood is there within seconds. That's the type of family that we want to become. We want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family that's included in the 1% of all churches nationwide that are seeing and experiencing growth largely through mission activity. That means through evangelism, through multiplying disciples, meaning followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the churches in the country, only 1%, this was pre-COVID, by the way, we're experiencing growth largely through mission activity. It's aspirational. We want to be a church that's mission-minded, family included in that 1%. We want to be people that are marked by God's grace. In other words, we don't just sing about grace. We don't just talk about grace. We don't just know about his grace, but we're so deeply marked by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that it impacts everything that we do. It influences the reasons that we sing, the way that we sing, the way that we give. It impacts everything that we do, the way that we think, the things that we feel, the values that we have. Uh, the way that we love people, it's all different. Kind of like we talked about last week when we saw in King David's kindness and his love toward Mephibosheth. Remember this story last week. If you don't remember it all, it's all a picture of the gospel. It's why it's one of my favorite stories in all the scripture. But it's a picture of God's love for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when King David sets his eyes upon a natural enemy to the throne. Someone who's hiding in Lodabar, someone who is a social cast off that no one else wants to be around. He comes to him and he gives him grace and he invites him to the king's table where he eats the rest of his days. And we see this beautiful picture of Mephibosheth being marked by the kindness and grace of the king and it forever changes his life. We want to be a family of believers, a mission-minded family that's marked by that grace to the point that it overflows in us and we be a people individually and as a community that exists for the joy of our city and for the glory of our God. And so the question that I'd have for us today is very simply this. What do we do 
Where do we go if we are a people that know all about his grace? We can tell you all about it. We can sing the lyrics to the song, but we can't actually say that I'm marked by God's grace. I think that's where a passage is going to help us with today is what I want to jump into. Like, what do we do when the luster of my beginning aha with him has worn off over time? That's where a passage is going to help us with today. So I want to jump into it in John chapter 1. I want to take us to this invitation of Jesus, which was true back then for all the original followers of Jesus, and it's true for us today. And then I want to take us to a couple stories in 14 and 15 where Jesus is going to essentially show us this, that time with Jesus, and this is going to be bottom line, I'm just going to give it to you up front, and then we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit later on. But he's going to show us that time with Jesus is the way to be marked by Jesus and ultimately more like Jesus in the end. If you're a note taker, you want to write that one down. But it's time with Jesus is the way to be marked by Jesus and ultimately more like Jesus in the end. And so that's where he's going to take us. John chapter 1, uh, picking up in verse 35. Actually, before I begin, I want to give a lot of credit to John Mark Comer on this. He's a pastor up north. Uh, he's an author that I started reading his books and listening to a lot of his lectures last uh, year a little bit, but especially even more so back in July. Uh, fell in love with a lot of things. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Not sure if you've read that one at all, but it was absolutely fantastic. Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, Live No Lies. Uh, anyway, a lot of his thoughts and a lot of his writing was very influential in this. And so I want to throw that up front, even as we quote different things later on, but want to give him proper credit where credit is due. But Jesus is going to take us there in John chapter 1. And so this is the beginning of his earthly ministry. This is when Jesus begins calling his disciples and saying, hey, come and follow me. And we pick it up here in verse 35. It says, the next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. I love that part. They were followers of John the Baptist at that time. They see Jesus and they all of a sudden just ditch John and they go follow Jesus. I think that's kind of funny. But verse 38, it says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked them, what is it that you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. And so they went and they saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, come and follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter before him, was also from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel said, it's kind of like Houston evidently, right? It's one of those places you're like, I'm just kidding. I'm from Houston. I love Houston. Houston's my hometown. So we can make fun of it a little bit there. But so Philip simply says, he says, come and see again. Now, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I love that. Jesus is throwing a little bit of shade at him and kind of playing with him a little bit. And so Nathanael asked, how is it that you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still underneath the fig tree before Philip called you. I don't know if you, any of you guys are watching The Chosen. It's this series on, online, but I've always kind of wondered, okay, like how, does, how does he get to this whole scene? What's Nathaniel going through when he's sitting underneath the fig tree? The Chosen is a series, of, I think it's one of the most excellent ones out there. Uh, it kind of walks through the Gospels. It's not cheesy, corny, it's accurate. It's really beautifully and well done. But they have an episode where they kind of bring this out a little bit more, and you begin to see a little bit of the backstory of what may be going on with Nathaniel. But there's this scene at the beginning of one of the episodes 
where Nathaniel is evidently a builder. He's somebody who's building things, and you see him holding his blueprints and, and working on a thing. You see the beginning, this construction of one of the buildings that he's working on. And in the opening scene, it goes up in flames. Literally, the entire thing is burning up. And you see the anguish that's inside Nathaniel's soul, and he's watching his life work just kind of dissipate right in front of him. And so he goes off, and he's in this field, and he's mourning, and he's grieving. And it's in the middle of this field. He's not around other people. He's not in the middle of a city. But he finds a fig tree, and he's sitting under the fig tree, and he's essentially having a, a pity party. And he's crying out to God in his anguish, and his agony. And he's simply saying, God, all of these things that I've been doing with my life, they're all done for you. Like, everything that I've been doing, it was all done for you. Why would this burn away? Like, why would you do that? All of it, it was done for you. Don't hide your face from me, he cries out. Don't hide your face from me. Don't ignore me any longer. Do you even see me right now? It's that time in your life when the difficulties that you're experiencing make you question the existence of God. And you cry out to him and you're saying, okay, God, do you see me in the middle of my pain right now? That's exactly what he's going through at that time. And so in that context, I love what Jesus says. He comes in and reveals who he is, and he simply says, yeah, Nathaniel, I see you. In fact, I saw you when you were still sitting underneath the fig tree. In other words, the self-revelation of Jesus coming and saying, yeah, you remember when you were crying out to God in that time? I am that God you were crying out to, and I saw you in the middle of your pain, in the middle of your agony while you were sitting underneath that fig tree. And so in verse 49, Nathaniel says, truly, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus looks at him and he says this. He says, you believe because I told you that I saw you underneath the fig tree? If you come and you follow me, I'll show you things you will not even believe. And so this is the invitation of Jesus. Not only to his disciples nearly 2,000 years ago, it's the invitation of Jesus that's still relevant to you and to me today, that you would come, that you would be with him, and that you would see even greater things that you can ever ask or imagine. It's what the psalmist is talking about when he said, taste and see that the Lord is good and blesses the one who runs to him. This is what he's talking about. He's saying, don't just take my word for it. Don't just take other people's word for it that God is good. <clears throat> don't just take other people. Don't just listen to the pastor when he tells you about it. Come and taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. As Kat used to say a long time ago, don't settle for eating somebody else's pre-chewed food. Right, because it's exactly what this is. This is me chewing on the beauty of God's word, me sitting in the presence of God, enjoying his goodness, hearing from him, and then coming and putting it in a way that we can talk about and we can, we can hopefully communicate in, a, in an effective way. And what he's saying and what she's saying right this is like, don't settle for someone else's pre-chewed food. Like you can live on pre-chewed food, but I guarantee like it's nothing compared to tasting and seeing for yourself the goodness of God. Don't take my word for it every time I tell you how incredible the heritage table is on Main Street in Frisco and what a brilliant chef, uh, what a brilliant chef like Rich Vanna is out there. You hear me talk about that all the time. Go and taste and see that it is good is what he says. And so this is the invitation of Jesus that you would come, that you would be with him and that you would see. And he says, I'll show you things that your mind won't even believe. And so the obvious question that we have listening to an invitation like this is, okay, how does this play out today? Jesus isn't physically with us right now. It would have been a little bit easier if he were our pastor, he were our rabbi. We're not living 2,000 years prior. Today he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning in sovereign authority today. How do we go and we be with Jesus today? Jesus explains it in John chapter 14. Let's turn over real quick. This is the time when he's preparing his disciples. It's a little further along in his ministry. They've been following him. 
And he's preparing them for this day that he's going to leave, he's going to go away, he's physically going to not be with them in their presence any longer. And so he says this, he says, I will ask the Father in verse 16, and it says that he will give you another advocate. The word advocate means a helper or an intercessor. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to send you someone else who's like me, an advocate or an intercessor to help you, he says, and be with you forever. The spirit of truth in verse 17, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. And when I leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Verse 25, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. This is very similar to what Jesus says just before his ascension, after the crucifixion, but after his resurrection, he's talking to his disciples and he says, I want you to go into all the world make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve everything that I've commanded you to do. And then what does he say? Lo, behold, I will be with you forever, even into the end of the age. And what Jesus is saying right here is the way that he's going to continue to be with you and me is through the indwelling Holy Spirit, which means that our primary goal as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as disciples of his, is to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the presence of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit is the one who, verse, 20, uh, or verse 27, teaches us all things according to his word and reminds us of who Jesus is and everything that Jesus said. This is the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone who is with Jesus, who, someone who is with him and, and being a disciple of Jesus today. Even in a Bible church, like it's still Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, even though the Bible is the Word of God, inspired fully by the Holy Spirit. There's a deep connectivity there that we're going to talk about in weeks to come right here. But the way that we be with Jesus today is to come and to spend time with Him, to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the presence of the Holy Spirit today. And so one more step to making this a little bit more concrete. Jesus takes it a little bit further in chapter 15 because he knows that the disciples are going to be kind of going, okay, this is a little bit mystical. This is a little bit ethereal. I can't really grab hold of this and make it concrete. And so Jesus tells us this metaphor and this story that's going to bring it all together in chapter 15. But he says this, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now remain in me as I also remain in you. The word that he uses right there is to abide, right? to, to, to sit there, to wait with. Um, he's saying, don't wander away from me. In all the distractions, and all the busyness of life, and all the different things you could be doing in any given day, like don't wander away from me. Remain with me. Be with me. Abide with me. No branch, he says, can bear fruit by itself and must remain in the vine. Notice the repetition of this word from here on out. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, they're thrown into the fire, they're burned. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. 
This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The metaphor that he gives is really, really clear. It's one that we repeat quite a bit around here. He says, abide in me over and over and over again. Jesus is the vine in this picture. The Father is the divine gardener. It says that he cuts off fruitless branches that are dead, and he cuts back or he prunes fruitful branches so that they can go and bear more fruit. Either way, I love the metaphor because he's saying that either way, whether you're fruitful or you're fruitless, there will be cutting. Many of us have experienced that cutting this past year. You know what it is to be fruitful and have things cut back and then know the pain of that, that God would do something in you, that God would do something in us that's even more fruitful in the end. And so he says this in verse three, he says, you, you, you people, you, you, you disciples, you followers of me, his audience is safe in verse 3. This is what he says. He says, uh, he, he says uh, you're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He says, you're already safe, meaning he's speaking to a gathering of believers in the setting right over here, which is really important to note because a common question that we all have when we talk about being with Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit is, well, okay, isn't the Holy Spirit always present with us? Right? This is one of the questions that we have quite a bit of time. Like, isn't he omnipresent? This is who God is. Isn't he always present with us? Isn't the Holy Spirit always present with us? And of course, the answer is, well, yes. But I want you to notice right here, Jesus is speaking about something very different. It's why he makes it a command. He says, no, abide in me. Abide, remain in me. In other words, um, he, he's saying something that's not always a given that we're going to do. Believers, to you disciples who are followers of me, he's saying, stay here. Don't wander off. And all the distractions and all the busyness that, be, that can be taking place and all the different options that you have going on every single day, don't wander away from me, remain in me. In other words, he's telling them something that's not always a given to do. I don't sit there and command Caleb to continue to exist. Caleb, exist. Like, I don't make a command out of something that's a given that's already there. He's saying, no, 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 it's not a given that we're always remaining in him. In other words, there are believers and there are times in our lives that we are prone to wander. There are times that we want to walk away. There are times that we want to drift. There are times that the world is so busy around us, we can't even hear our voice. And so the implication here is that there's many who are clean and do not abide. And what he says right here, the result is that we are totally and completely fruitless apart from him. No love, no joy, no peace, no patience, no kindness, no goodness, no gentleness, no faithfulness, and no self-control. And so he talks about obedience and love for one another, which we're going to talk about in some weeks to come here. But before he goes there, all he simply says is this, abide in me. You who are a believer, a disciple of mine, remain in me. Stay here. Don't wander. Don't, don't take off. Sit here and abide in me as I abide in you. Ten times is the same word to say, remain here in me. In other words, know me to the point that you know my voice and you do whatever it takes to stay with me all throughout the day. Which is not to say that we go off to a convent or a monastery or something like that and we just got to sit there and we're like constantly reading, constantly praying all day long. But the way that Comer says it, and I love the way that he says it, he says this, it simply means that you've mastered the ability to be in two places at the exact same time. Someone somewhere else physically, but also keenly aware of the presence of God, sitting at your table, eating breakfast in the morning, consciously aware of the Holy Spirit's presence and Jesus' love for you. Driving to work in the commute and listening to the Holy Spirit remind you of what Jesus said about giving kindness to the people that just cut you off in traffic. 
like going for gas and groceries and listening to the Holy Spirit, consciously aware of his presence with you, listening to, his Holy, to the Holy Spirit as he leads you to go and engage someone else who's in need and wants to hear or needs to hear a word from him. It's sitting in traffic and getting caught up in worship or prayer as you are keenly aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit and his goodness towards you. It's joining a men's or a women's small group and listening to the Holy Spirit as it reminds you that our love for one another, it's not exclusive it's not cliquish. It's not any of those things that it's always open to new people as well as other people that you may not socially align with or politically align with that are gathering is, disparate, is different. And, and his ways are different than ours. It's browsing on Facebook and being aware of his Holy Spirit as we browse on social media and on Facebook as we listen to the words of Jesus and choose words that are according to his tone and not our own. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, rejoice in the Lord and pray without ceasing, right? He's not talking about, hey, never get off your knees and never start saying that out loud or don't do anything else with your life. Don't even have a job, right? Be that uh, wanderer. He's not talking about that. He's saying constantly be in my presence. This is what Joshua is talking about when he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You should meditate on it day in and day out, so that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it. He's saying, meditate on it. In other words, like, in other words, sit on it, read on it, but don't just read it and run away. Go do something different. Abide in me. Let it ruminate deep inside your soul so that it penetrates from, from the subtleties of your mind and it goes deep into your soul. Like sit there and let it come up day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. Meditate upon the truths of my word. It's what Brother Lawrence calls practicing the presence of God. And I love the way that he talks about this. He says, it's practicing the presence of God. If you're not familiar with Brother Lawrence, brother is not his first name. Um, it's not even a friendly greeting that we have here. He's a 17th century Parisian monk. And uh, what I love about his story, he's not a, he's not a priest. He's not an author. He's not a scholar. He's not the guy that sells out all the conferences and things like that. All he is is a dishwasher in a monastery. And what's beautiful about him is he's, he gave his life to what he calls practicing the presence of God. And he would write to other people these letters about what it means to practice the presence of God, how to be in two places at the same time. And I love the way that he talks about this. He says this, he says, the time of my business does not differ with me from my time in prayer. Because in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several people are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God. In his great tranquility, as if I were on my knees before the blessed sacrament. What he's saying now, like this is one of the, the blessed sacrament for a 17th century Parisian monk. This is one of the most holy times of the day you can possibly imagine. Like this is what they did. They would get away and they would be in a monastery away from the rest of the world and they would practice the sacrament. And they would come before the table, the bread, the, his body broken for you, the cup, his blood shed for you. They would take that time and time again as a way of participating in the crucifixion, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they would take it in and it was one of the most holy moments for a Parisian monk. And what Brother Lawrence is saying right here is that those times when I'm on my knees before God in prayer, are no more holy and blessed than when I've got dirty dishes and a dozen hungry monks demanding food. Why? Because I have practiced being in the presence of God no matter what's happening around me. Church, can you imagine what it would be like to have that kind of awareness of and connectivity to the Holy Spirit no matter what's going around you in the given day? The toddlers are chirping. They're all screaming. Like there's marker on the walls and like you don't know what happened to their face. 
and you're so keenly aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit and connected to the loudness of his voice that it drowns out the things that are going on around you. Like, can you imagine what it would be like to have that sort of dynamic relationship, awareness of the indwelling Holy Spirit and connectivity to his voice that it actually makes the other things sound strangely dim? Like, this is the invitation that's on the table that Jesus says for us. He says, come and abide in me. Be Two places at the exact same time, where you are physically, on the way to work, in front of your boss, with the kids, at home, around the dinner table, in isolation in your apartment, wherever you may be physically, but keenly aware spiritually of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the loudness of his voice in any given moment. He says, abide in me. And we cannot miss the command that's here in this text. It's not a given that you and I are always going to be abiding in him, remaining in him. We're prone to wander. We're prone to be distracted. And so what he's saying right here through this command is that it's going to be something that takes practice. Kind of like Alan Iverson in the press conference. Practice? We're talking about practice? It's exactly what he's talking about right here. It's a command. It's not a given. Yes, it's going to require practice, especially today when we're living in a time that has more distractions, more temptations, more divisions, more anger, more hostility, more things out there to distract us than ever before. It is not a given that you and I, simply because we are found in Christ, that we're going to be following him and tuning in really, really well. I love the way um, Dallas Willard talks about this, but he says this. He says, the first and most basic thing that we can and we must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. In other words, I love this. He's acknowledging that it's easy to get distracted. He's acknowledging that, hey, a lot of us times we, we, we start off with great intentions and we say, okay, God, I, I'm moving towards you this time in the morning. It's all given to you. But he's acknowledging that a lot of times we start off well and we have good intentions and we start praying and then we close our eyes and then we start drifting. And we start thinking about all the anxieties that, are, that we're facing in the day or all the different things that are happening around us. And it's really, really easy to get distracted. But here's what he says. He says, these are habits and these are not the law of gravity and they can be broken. Isn't that good? He says, these are habits. These are not the law of gravity. In other words, it's not set in stone that we are given to a life of distraction. Like it's not your sentence that you will never know what it's like to practice the presence of God. It's not a life sentence that you're always going to be wandering, always distracted, always out there. He says, uh, these are habits that can be easily broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. Isn't that good? In other words, what he's saying, like our old habits, like they can become new, our old habits of tuning him out. They can be broken as we practice the presence of God and and, and be more and more aware of his presence and he can become the pole star of our inward beings. And so this is where spiritual disciplines come into play. If you're not familiar with the word spiritual disciplines or what we're talking about here, um, 
You're never going to see an official list of them in Scripture. You're not going to go to a passage and say, hey, here's all these disciplines that we can live with that are going to help in, in a specific teaching or anything like this. Nevertheless, we're going to see them all throughout Scripture. The spiritual disciplines are going to be things like meditating upon the truth of God's Word. As we read about in Joshua, like, let this law, and that was just the, the, the tiny section of the law at that time, but meditate on it day and night so that you can be careful and do everything uh, that he commands us to do. It's going to be things like prayer and fasting and silence and solitude, confession of sin, self-examination. In other words, coming before God and saying, Holy Spirit, help me see myself as you see me. Let me be aware of the things that are deep inside my soul that aren't always obvious to me. Biblical community, the body of Christ, being with Jesus in the middle of community, spiritually disciplined, saying, I'm not going to live in isolation. I'm going to live in the context of a biblical community, recognizing that this is the body of Christ and the local expression of it. Praise and worship, all the different commands all throughout the songs, to sing songs of praise and affection and our adoration to God. Simple living rather than extravagant living, rest evangelism, things like that. Another word that you can use here are spiritual habits. This is what we're talking about here with disciplines. We're talking about habits, decisions that you make by faith that hopefully become habits at some point in your life that simply allow us to be with Jesus and ultimately more like him in the end. And so it's important to understand when we talk about discipline or being spiritually disciplined or something like that, we're not talking about legalism. This is one of the things that many of us feel okay about not being spiritually disciplined because I don't want to be a legalist. And we read about this all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus comes to the religious elite, to the Pharisees who also happen to be very religiously disciplined, and we think, okay, that means that they were legalistic, and that's the thing that Jesus is rebuking. It's not the thing that Jesus is rebuking. The legalism which Jesus was rebuking in the religious elite of that day was essentially a form of self-righteousness. It's a, it's a sense of saying, okay, I am righteous before God simply on the basis of my ability to keep the letter of the law, simply on the basis of my morality, or I'm able to be approved by God still today because of something that I'm doing. Maybe it's my religiosity or something like that, or it's something that through my obedience to God, through my adherence to the letter of the law, it makes me better than other people around me. That's what legalism is. Being disciplined, the spiritual disciplines are simply decisions that you and I make by faith to go and to be with Jesus. And so if you and I are ever afraid of becoming legalistic, we get concerned and we say, hey, I don't want to become a legalist over here. The solution to legalism is not abandoning the disciplines. The solution to legalism is repentance. We come before God and we say, Father, would you forgive me for actually thinking that my disciplined lifestyle or my morality or anything that I'm doing in and of myself is what makes me right before you. So the solution is not to abandon the discipline, it's to repent and say, Father, forgive me for these things. I return to you. I'm clinging to your grace, not my merit, but I'm going to still do whatever it takes to come and to be with you. That's what the disciplines are. All they are is a means to an end, but they are not actually the end. The disciplines that you participate in, that you orient your life around, they're never the end in and of ourself. All it is is a means to a greater end. Think about it like this. Like the point of reading the Bible is never simply to know the Bible. And there's a lot of atheists. There's a lot of people that know the logistics of the Bible and do not know God. There are a lot of people who know the logistics of the Bible and do not love God or even give their lives to him. Like the purpose of reading your Bible is not simply to know the Bible. It is to know the God who's breathed life into the word of God, that our heart, soul, mind, and strength can be fully dedicated and devoted to him. Like the point of prayer is simply not, it's not prayer. 
It's not to be seen by other people, as Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Like the purpose of prayer is fellowship with the Almighty God and this joy that we have to know Him, talk with Him, have open dialogue with Him, to listen, with, to, listen to Him, and then to present our request before Him. Silence and solitude. The point is not simply to sit in a blue room and to meditate and to just empty ourselves and to center our souls in some universe or something like that. The point of silence and solitude is to get away from the distractions of life to slow down and to get quiet before God and to say, Father, in this quietness, you are sufficient more than anything else that I could be doing. You are sufficient to satisfy and to save my soul. And there's nothing better that I can be doing in this time than to simply sit and be with you. Church, like that's what we're talking about. The disciplines, they are a means to an end that you and I can abide in Jesus, that we can be with Jesus through the Holy Spirit and then ultimately be more like him in the end. But that's the image that he gives us in John 15. Jesus says, how in the world is a branch supposed to produce great grapes unless he's deeply connected to the vine? Like how do they produce fruit apart from the Holy Spirit? It's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. How do we produce these things apart from a life that is with him, lived with him, following him, listening to him, aware of his presence, deeply connected to the indwelling Holy Spirit? I mean, it's what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all these things, but they're fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not a list of things that we're supposed to go do, primarily in this text right here. Like, it's not, it's not an action list. Like how many of you guys are like this? I love, I love goals. I love doing things. Like, give me a set of goals I'm all about, and I'm going to go dominate that list of goals. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to and read the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and been like, okay, God, you want to be loving? Great. That's what I'm tackling this week. I'm going to go be love. Joyful? <laughs> I'm going to put on that face of joy. Like, in my trials and tribulations, like, I'm going to put on joy, peace, May save that for retirement or something, but you know, like that might be good one day. Like kindness, like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go be kind today. Like how many of us sit there and say, okay, like how many times have we sat there and thought, okay, like this is something that I should do more so than someone that I become? Anybody else there before? Like this was me for the longest time. And the problem is I can act very, very joyful and I can act very, very good for a certain amount of time. In fact, in the church, we became great at this. We'd come to church. How you doing, brother? Oh, so blessed. Joy of the Lord, man, I'm telling you. So blessed, right? Like that's a culture that we created, not a, like all around the place, right? And we can act really, really good. And we can act for a short amount of time full of joy. But the problem is we can't actually be joyful and good or more joyful and good because being is not a matter of the will. It's a matter of the heart and Jesus' life overflowing inside of you and me. And so Jesus comes and he simply says, come and abide in me. Paul's going to say, walk by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the way to be with Jesus today begins with a conscious awareness of and connection to the indwelling Holy Spirit, his voice above all other things. Other translations are going to say, keep in step with the Holy Spirit, meaning practice these things. Practice it. Make it your discipline, yes, to be with him all the time, to put yourself in a position to be with him all the time, but also then to walk with him and do the, very, the different things that you see Jesus do. This is what Comer calls uh, adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. 
I love the way that he talks about this, but he says we have to adopt the way of Jesus. In other words, it's not just a passive thing we're talking about, but there is a walking in and walking in the rhythms that we see Jesus walk in. He says many of us want the life of Jesus. Here's how he explains it, without his lifestyle. Many of us want the life of Jesus, but we do not want his lifestyle. But the two go hand in hand. You cannot have the life of Jesus apart from being with him and adopting his way of life. And so here's what he means by that. I'm watching the Olympics this past week, how many of you guys are watching the Olympics? You're loving it. Um, it's a good time. I found this past year I'm not watching as much as I typically do. I don't have the live apps anymore. And so I'm like, ah, I don't have NBC or whatever it's on. And so uh, checking out a lot of the highlights, but I've always loved the Olympics, right? They're fantastic. I love going and seeing some of these, uh, these athletes that are the greatest athletes in the world. I mean, I, I, personally, I love swimming. I like the sprints. I love the races. Uh, Caleb Dressel this past year, just absolutely incredible. Five golds, I think, to date. Katie Ledecky wrapping up, wrapping up this incredible career. Allison Felix, most decorated track athlete we've seen. I mean, just, just unbelievable career. I find myself watching the Olympics and seeing, uh, I mean, they're just ripped, right? They're, they're ripped. They're the greatest athletes in the world. They're, they're the top of their sport. And I find myself watching the Olympics so many times being like, man, that would be awesome to be them. I mean, you ever, you, ever, you ever sit there and look at like Michael Phelps and you're like, dude, that would be awesome to be Michael Phelps back in the day, right? And then it hits me and I start thinking, man, that'd be great to be him, but I don't know so much about the lifestyle. Like I remember reading about Michael Phelps a little bit and, and like every day uh, he, he, would, like he, would, he would swim 50 miles a week. Do you remember reading this? Like he would swim 50 miles a week, twice a day, six hours a day, six days a week, sometimes more if he's training in altitude. He would eat 12,000 calories a day around 4,000 calories every single meal. And the dude still had abs because he's training all the time. Like he's constantly working, constantly racing, constantly doing all those things. And so I looked at him and I'm like, dude, that would be incredible to be Michael Phelps. But then I sit there and realize, yeah, he doesn't get smoked ribs. <laughs> like he doesn't, get, he doesn't get late night. Well, I guess he kind of does, but he doesn't get to do some of the different things. He doesn't get to be at the church. He doesn't get to do some of these things over there. And I sit there and I watch the Olympics and I'm sitting there kind of going, okay, I sure would like the byproduct of that, but I don't know that I'd really like that. Which isn't to say that, hey, if I adopted the entirety of the lifestyle or anything, that I'm going to be this gold athlete or anything like that. But the point is still the same. Many of us want the life. We simply don't want the lifestyle. And the problem is that our lives are a byproduct of our lifestyle, right? We know that, right? Like our lives are a byproduct of our lifestyle, meaning like all of our rituals, all of our habits, all of our disciplines, all the decisions that we make about the way that we live, the way that we organize our lives, the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money. In business language, they put it like this. The system that we set up is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. Right? You've heard that before. Like the system that you set up, it's perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. And so the question that we've got to ask is, okay, well, what results am I getting from my life? What is the fruit of my life? And not just the right answer, but actually, what do other people say and what do other people see about the fruit of your life? Like, what results am I saying? Does any of it even look like Jesus at all? I mean, you just heard Jesus say right here in this text, peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you. Is your life characterized by peace at all? Anywhere? In the hecticness, the, like the chaos of our culture today, are you actually walking in his peace? 
I mean, many of us hear Jesus say this right over here. We're going, yeah, God, I, I need that peace. I want that peace. I'm clinging to that peace. I even claim that peace in a number of different ways. Like, but we are living in one of the most anxious times that we've ever lived in today. Like, I'm stressed about everything. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's kids going back to school and whether or not they're going to be staying home or wearing masks or going to public or private or home or any of the decisions around with that. Like, work is terrible. Like, coworkers are absolutely terrible. Like, layoffs are happening. COVID's climbing once again. People are still divided and angry about everything. God, I would love a little bit of this peace that we're talking about here. And Jesus is simply saying, it's not found where you think it's going to be found. He's saying, come to me. Abide in me. Be with me. And ultimately, you will be more and more like me. So Comer talks about with adopting his lifestyle, adopting his rhythms and his habits. Saying right here, be with me, follow me, do the different things that you see me do. In other words, what he's saying is that being with him, like we're not talking about this passive thing, this ethereal thing only where we're just aware, but being with him, sometimes that means that, that God is coming to me in my fig tree moments like Nathaniel in the agony when he needs to come and pursue me. And there's other times that I'm walking away from the fig tree and I'm following him wherever he's taking me over here. This is what he's talking about right here. And so we see this in Jesus. We read about it all throughout the gospels, the way that Jesus lived. And we notice things like Jesus was never in a rush, right? Like he was never anxious. He was never in a hurry to get from one place to the next. And when we see the lifestyle of Jesus, we notice his rhythms. We notice that he still chose to worship in the synagogue every single Sabbath. Like why? He's the son of God and he still chose to worship. We read that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man in Luke chapter 2. He prayed and he made it a priority to spend time with the Father when he and the Father were one. Like he lived in community rather than being alone. These are the rhythms of Jesus. Like he served people left and right. He lived simply. He bought very little. He slept. I love this about Jesus. I mean, we, like he slept. I mean, he's in the back of a boat and there's a storm that comes and everybody's freaking out. Jesus, we're going to die, die, die. He's taking a nap in the back of a boat. Like Jesus practiced Sabbath. He went out and he preached. He healed people of their diseases. He taught about the kingdom of God. But church, like these are the rhythms of Jesus. And he lived totally and completely at peace. And some of us are sitting there going, well, okay, he's the divine son of God. It's a little bit different for him, man. True, he is fully divine. But church, he was also fully human. In other words, like he knows the agony that we live in. He knows the sting of death. Like he, he knows what suffering is like. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knew what the sting of betrayal. Like he knew suffering. He knew pain. He knew humiliation. And still, he always knew peace. And so he can absolutely give it, but the reality is he doesn't just give life apart from the lifestyle. And this is where many of us get tripped up because the fact of the matter is life is busy and we often get really, really, really busy. And the reality is he's not always our top priority. And because he's not our top priority many, many times, we just don't spend time with him. And if we don't spend time with him, we can't actually follow him. We can't see his lifestyle. We can't walk in his footsteps. And so we overeat and we don't sleep. We overspend instead of living simply. We isolate ourselves from community. And we don't serve and we don't use any of our real gifts for his glory. We're always on our phones. I was 
reading this article this past week. It said the average person touches their screen 2,617 times every single day. And we're browsing for 145 minutes a day, which is nearly two and a half hours that we're browsing on our phone. And that's just the average user. Like heavy users, is nearly twice that. Point of the matter is, if we're not constantly, we're not doing anything consistent with the lifestyle of Jesus, and still we're sitting here simply going, okay, God, where is this peace that you talk about? Where is this peace? Where is the love? Where is the joy? Where is the kindness? Where is the goodness? Where is the gentleness, the faithfulness, and the self-control? So Dallas Willard wraps it up like this, and he says, the general, I love this, the general human failing is to want what is right and important. In other words, like we want God's peace. We want to be fruitful. We want to follow in his footsteps. We want the right thing. But at the same time, not commit to the kind of life that will produce the action that we know to be right or the condition that we want to enjoy. In other words, I'd love to be the Olympian, just I don't want to adopt the lifestyle. I don't want six hours a day in a pool. He says, this is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. And so here's where I want to land today. It's it's not with guilt. It's not with shame. It's not with, hey, burn your phones or throw them in the trash or anything like that. It's simply that you and I would come here today and that we would pay attention, that we would lean in, and that we would hear the invitation of Jesus to you today when he simply says, come and find rest in me. Abide in me, remain in me, sit with me, enjoy me, follow me in my lifestyle as I take places and I bring joy to you. How do we be marked by grace? It's right here in this invitation of Jesus. Come and abide in me. All of the peace that we long for, all of the fruit that we long for, it's right here in the presence of God. All of the love, it's right here. Come and abide and remain in me. Be with me through the Holy Spirit. Be keenly aware of his presence and deeply connected to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Two places at the exact same time, physically where you are, spiritually aware of what the Holy Spirit is saying to you constantly. Be with me. Follow me. Adopt my lifestyle and rhythms, and that's when I'll show you things you will not believe. Church, that's my hope and my prayer for us today, that we would be a people that launch out new rhythms as school begins this next semester, and as this is a kind of a turning point, and we kind of say, okay, things are about to change, that we would develop healthy rhythms, that we would be a people that come and take Jesus up on this offer to come, and every day to simply be with him. Very specifically, that we would make it a brand new habit. Maybe this isn't a part of your regular routine. But this would become a brand new habit. It's 10 minutes a day even, at the very minimum, that we would come and we would make it a time to be silent and to be in solitude before him as we invite him into our day. I'll tell you just very specifically, I'm thinking a lot of the mom that's coming in and kids are going crazy all around you and you're hearing the voice constantly and you're sitting there going, okay, I have no silence in my home. That, that, that you would find a moment, maybe it's when you first wake up or maybe it's when they go to school or they're at their play date or whatever it may be, that you would come, that you'd be able to come and lock yourself in that bathroom, right? And say, hey, just give me a little bit. And that you would sit there in silence and solitude as you receive from him and you say, Jesus, you are more than sufficient to satisfy and save. This is the most, this is the best thing I can be is simply to come and to be with you today. Would you come and fill me? Maybe it's you're going off to work and you come a little bit earlier. This is what I do. I'll come up first thing in the morning over here before everybody else gets in. I'll shut my door, put on the noise-canceling headphones, 
uh, no music on or anything, but I'll just sit there and say, Jesus, you are more than sufficient to satisfy and to save more than anything I can do, more than any agenda I can do. God, I just want to rest in you. What I hear your voice above all the toxicity of the world that I'm living in today, but to sit there in silence and solitude as I listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit come and remind me of all the things Jesus said and all the things that Jesus is. To come and to be with Jesus and rest in him today. Father, we love you, God. Praising you, God, that you have given us this invitation through Jesus to come and to be with you through the Holy Spirit who lives in us constantly, those who are found in Jesus. God, we thank you for that. And I pray today that someone would find rest, that they would find the joy of being with you in the chaos and in the busyness of life. Father, that we would be a people, a church here at Dallas Bible that hits reset, that we would be marked by your grace, maybe for the first time or maybe it's the first time in a long time, as a result of being with you and that as a result of being with you over time, Father, that you would make us more and more like you in the end. God, would you come and would you have your way in us? Father, would you give us the ability to hear your voice today? Lord, we love you. Father, we praise you. In Jesus' name. Church, I want to invite you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want to give us a minute as you sit here and the band plays over you lightly and softly. Would you just enjoy a moment in the silence with Jesus? And would it carry over to your week to week in Jesus' name?